Um, but before we get started, uh, I'd just like to pray real quick, uh, ask God to speak through his uh, text, uh, and we'll get started. So if you'll bow your head in prayer with me. Um, King Jesus, uh, we're just really grateful for your words to us. Uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to study what you have to say, um, to look at your scripture um, and see the ways that you intervene in our lives, the ways that you uh, don't abandon us to sin, but the way that you uh, step in. Um, and so, Lord, as we, as we look at the way that you step into our lives, uh, would we be open, would we be honest, uh, and would we let your Holy Spirit do its work? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, great. Well, I don't want to sound like a broken record, uh, and I definitely don't want to cement my place as the Psalms guy, uh, but, but looking back on it, this is my third sermon in a row uh, that I've done on Psalms. Uh, a couple months ago, I talked about Psalm 16. Uh, last week, I talked about Psalm 51. Uh, and this week, we'll be in Psalm 32. Uh, so, Brian, if you're listening to the live stream, apparently I've got 147 sermons left because there's only, there's only 147 sermons I haven't done from Psalms. So now we've got a limited number here. Um, but if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, the book of Psalms is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, um, and it's one of the best places to draw truth from, um, because it covers such a wide range of hard expressions uh, and experiences directed toward God. Uh, if you can't find a psalm that you relate to, I would be shocked. I would be genuinely surprised. Um, but even though, uh, so even though we'll be in the same book from last week, uh, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different than how we did things last week. Uh, last week, we did more of an in-depth Bible study. We looked at each verse and, you know, broke down the meaning, broke down the context. We really looked at each piece of the puzzle. Uh, but this week, uh, I want to drive home a more practical approach of how then should we live uh, that's why I chose, you know, when Brian told me I'm going to be preaching two weeks in a row, uh, that's why I chose Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 as a package deal. Um, because last week with Psalm 51, we looked at, you know, what is repentance? How does that work? Uh, and now we're looking at what does it mean to live in that repentance? Last week, we looked at how do we ask for forgiveness. Uh, this week, we're looking at how do we live in that forgiveness, uh, you can think of Psalm 51 as a foundation that was laid, uh, and then Psalm 32 as the structure that gets built up on top of that. Uh, and, it, you know, when Brian told me I had two weeks in a row, I was like, oh, perfect. What two better chapters to go together than Psalm 51 and Psalm 32? Uh, and apparently, I'm not the only person who thinks this. In fact, I say apparently, I actually got this from someone else. Uh, but a lot of scholars, a lot of people who study the Bible, actually believe that Psalm 32 is a sequel to Psalm 51. Uh, they're slightly in the wrong order in, in the Bible itself, but uh, that's because these weren't organized chronologically. Actually, I don't know how they're organized. Somebody wants to check that out and get back to me uh, and tell me how they picked what order these Psalms are going in. That'd be great. But uh, we can't be certain that this is a sequel uh, because unlike Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 32 doesn't have a section header at the top. You remember last week we looked at Psalm 51 uh, and it talked about, you know, this was written on the particular occasion when Nathan the prophet came and spoke to the King David. 
This one doesn't have anything at the top there that indicates a particular historical period. But looking at the themes and looking at what we're going to talk about, you can kind of see how a lot of people would reach the conclusion this is the sequel. So uh, if either you weren't here last week uh, or if last Sunday was a little bit too far back for some of us to remember, a lot can happen in seven days and remembering all the way back to last Sunday is a little bit tough sometimes. Let me give you a quick refresher on what's going on and what kind of context is happening here. So in ancient Israel, there is a king, his name was David, uh, and he's described as a man after God's own heart. Uh, he had a really close, tight, personal relationship with God. So close, in fact, that he authored most of the Psalms found in the Bible, including this one. He was good. He was a man after God's own heart, a pretty upstanding guy, a guy we would most likely admire, but he was still human. He wasn't sinless. And in one of his worst moral failings, in one of his certainly most public moral failings, David used his authority as king uh, to make a married woman sleep with him. Uh, he impregnated her. He conspired to cover it up. Uh, and when that didn't work, he ordered her husband to be killed. That's rough, and honestly, that's a lot to cover in a recap. Saying all that sequentially in a row in one sentence uh, is heavy, right? And I promise last week we did it more justice as we unpacked it all and talked about exactly what was going on with each point. Uh, but if you want to get more than just the recap, you can read that story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. But so, so that's where we're coming from. That's the context of what David did. But in the middle of this story, in the middle of 2 Samuel 12, uh, is a verse that I think acts as a very good thesis statement for what we're going to be covering for both Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, we read, uh, David said to the prophet Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's a really awesome verse. And there's two things to notice from it. First, David confesses his sin and repents of his wrongdoing, right? I have sinned against the Lord. And that's a summary, right? That's a recap of what David said in Psalm 51, I've sinned against the Lord. But the next part, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. That's where we're picking up with Psalm 32. Psalm 51 starts with repentance. Psalm 32 picks up with the fulfilled promise of forgiveness, but uh, before we actually get to look at that, uh, before we look at why the promise of forgiveness is so sweet, we need to take a closer look at why sin is so bad and what it does to our soul. Um, and so for that, uh, if I could get my first slide up on the screen. Like I mentioned, I love working in college ministry. And for me, that involves a lot of personal interaction, a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of conversation. And I'm a very visual person. And so if you start talking to me about like, oh, what kind of stuff do you teach college students? I am chock full of different graphics, little maps, little diagrams. And so I was like, oh, perfect opportunity to use a diagram. Um, so this flow chart here is something that I've picked up across my time in college ministry uh, that really helps students understand how does sin snowball? How does it impact our lives? How does it work into our soul? Um, and it's a little spiral called the sin-shame cycle. 
Uh, so you can start at any point on the cycle. I'm sure we've all been at a certain point, but uh, we'll start at the top uh, because that's where David's story starts out. Um, at the top, it says sin action, uh, and really any sinful action will do. Uh, but with David, he made the decision to sleep with Bathsheba. Uh, adultery was his first sin action there. Once he had committed that sin action, he was ashamed of what he had done. Second Samuel doesn't exactly say the words, David was ashamed, but you can certainly see the lengths of his shame uh, by the effort that he put in to cover up the shame. You know, he, he had a conspiracy to get Uriah home, to get him drunk. He had him murdered. He married his wife, right? Like, it all you can see, you don't try to cover up something you're not ashamed of. And so David feels polluted. He feels ashamed. Throughout Psalm 51, he talks about needing to be cleaned. He knew his sin and was ashamed of it. So the second waypoint on this journey is shame. Uh, from that place of shame, Sin makes us hide from God and from others. This is, perhaps, uh, this is in fact, the oldest reaction to sin uh, that we have recorded in the Bible. Uh, in the very first book of the Bible, we read that before sin entered the world, humans were naked, they weren't ashamed. But as soon as sin entered the world, they became afraid and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That's what sin does. It makes us feel ashamed and want to isolate, withdraw, to hide from others. There's a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and on commenting on the isolation of sin, he had this to say, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, and the more disastrous his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. So from shame, we move to that place of isolation. Finally, this place of isolation leads us to despair and hardness of heart. Despair, because sin quickly starts spiraling out of our control. We, le we lose all hope of you know, re regaining mastery over it and we lose all hope of being able to change. Hardness of heart, because as we become accustomed to sin, and as we go through the cycle more and more frequently, we become accustomed to that sin. The, the impact of that sin starts losing its grip. You know, you tell one lie, and you feel pretty bad about it, but after 20 lies, you've kind of grown used to it. You've hardened your heart. It's a part of who you are. You can never change, and that's that despair feeling, the despair of not being able to change. This is how David jumped from lust, did a full circle back to adultery, did a full circle back to conspiracy, did a full circle back to murder. Sin is never content to live by itself. It always wants to invite more and more in as the cycle continues over and over and over. It's a vicious cycle, right? It's, and I'm sure we've all been here. I've certainly been here at one point or another. Um, and it's hard, and it's not the kind of problem that we can solve with self-help books or discipline techniques, because the problem starts at the spirit, right? We, we have a spirit that is so deep in despair and hardness. We have a spirit that is sinful. So rather than leaving us enslaved to this cycle, 
rather than leaving us abandoned to figure it out on our own. God decided to step in and disrupt the sin-shame cycle. Uh, and in fact, that's where David starts with Psalm 32. So before we read that, can I get the next slide up real quick? Perfect. God disrupts the sin-shame cycle. Um, that Those letters in red are really important. But uh, we start out in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Uh, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed. That's how David starts out the psalm, blessed. There's a Hebrew word for this that we translate to English. It's asre, and I hope I pronounced that right. I, I'm really iffy on my pronunciation. But asre, it doesn't just mean fortunate or lucky, as we typically mean bless you, right? Like, oh, bless you. you know, or, oh, I've had a blessed day. I've had a pretty good day. I found a penny on the ground. I don't know. It, it doesn't mean fortunate or lucky. That's not what David is saying here. He's not saying you are lucky if your sins or transgressions are forgiven. What David is saying here is something more like, oh, how very happy is the man whose sin is forgiven. Oh, how supremely pleased is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the hope of the gospel, when we're at our lowest, when we're in that low point of despair and hardness of heart, even when we're dead in our sins, God doesn't leave us. God doesn't hope for us to figure it out on our own. He makes a way. He forgives our debts. He covers our sin and counts no iniquity against us. That's why gospel means good news. This forgiveness brings a living hope that destroys the power of despair and hardness of heart in our lives. And this isn't something we have to earn. God doesn't step in as soon as we fix our sin action. God doesn't say, as soon as you make reparations for all the bad things you've done, as soon as you, you do enough good to pull yourself out of the hole that you dug, then you can have that gospel hope, right? He doesn't get, expect us to get better, and then he'll intervene. Rather, he steps in at the lowest point of our heart, and does the work for us. And I think the reason is that God wants a relationship with us, not benefit from our actions. I love what Proverb 30, uh, 23, 26 says, um, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. God's goal is not for us to do for him, but rather to give him our heart and to be with him. And that's exactly the promise of God in 1 John 1, 9. Simply, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of forgiveness, the guarantee that God is for us, not against us. And it's this assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's the perfect antidote to despair and hardness of heart. So the gospel brings hope, and that hope has the power to destroy despair and hardness of heart. From this seed of gospel hope that's planted in us grows the next antidote, confession. And that word is a little bit weird and uncomfortable to us. We don't like it. You know, typically, if we're thinking about the spiritual discipline of confession, 
uh, we try to find every way to evade, evade it and avoid it and get around it. Um, it's something that we dread. Confessing our sins is, to God is bad enough. We, we try all sorts of ways to get around that. Uh, but the fact that he asks us to confess to our brothers and sisters, we shirk away from that by all means necessary. Even David had that same reaction. Uh, in verses three through five, uh, David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my, uh, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice here that David confesses his sin to God, right? David said, I have sinned against the Lord, and against the Lord alone have I sinned. So, you know, if we're thinking of ways that we can evade confession, we might think, oh, why is it necessary to confess to brothers and sisters? Uh, can't we just save ourselves the trouble and embarrassment by only confessing to God? Well, besides the fact that, you know, God expressly commands us to confess to brothers and sisters, you know, James 5.16 comes to mind, uh, God tells us that we can't experience the full healing power of confession until we do so with other people. Confession to other believers brings healing to our isolated souls and to our entire church. Don't get me wrong, confession hurts a lot sometimes, but it's always good for the soul. If we imagine sin as a barrier, as a hedge that's been put off to cut us off and separate us from both God and man, Confession is the wrecking ball, the sledgehammer that brings the wall tumbling down. That's why confession is the spiritual antidote to the poison of isolation. About this, uh, that same German pastor had this to say, confession breaks through to the cross. The root of all sin is pride. I want to be my own law. I have a right to myself, to my own hatred, my own desires, my own life, and my own death. Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down, it is a dreadful blow to my pride. In the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. Confession breaks down the pride that held us in isolation. Confession to brothers and sisters in Christ makes sure that no remnant of sin, not even a tiny splinter of pride, is left in our soul. We find it to be a great and dreadful blow to our pride, but that's exactly what our soul needs if we're going to heal fully. And strangely enough, we find it less humiliating to confess our sins to the all-holy judge than to confess with other sinful brothers. You'd think it'd be the other way around. You know, I don't want to confess my sin to God, so I'll confess to other people who are in the same boat as me. But somehow we find it easier to confess to God, who knows no sin, than to confess to our brothers and sisters who are also in sin. Um, I think part, part of the reason uh, is that we have to say the words out loud. We have to actually acknowledge that what we did was wrong. And we have to hear a response back from someone. 
audible, responding words. Maybe it is that when we confess to a fellow believer, that confession becomes more real. It becomes more concrete than when we simply think we're talking to God. If confession to a believer is hard, perhaps that's just an indicator that our prayers to God are not truly coming from a heart that's repentant. I do want to clarify really quickly uh, that when I talk about confession, I'm not talking about coming before the entire church. I don't want everybody to come up on stage and confess your deepest, darkest sins from the stage to everybody. Uh, And I'm not saying that you need to post it on Facebook and make it everybody's business and everybody needs to read it. Um, And I'm not saying that you need to sit down in a a back booth with Rachel or Brian or Julie. Um, That's not exactly what I'm talking about with confession. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe you do need to talk with someone about it, uh, and that someone might be Brian or Rachel or Julie. But more what I mean is the healing power of confession in personal, one-on-one conversation with close friends. Christ has appointed us all as his ambassadors. So with confession, even with one other believer, one-on-one, to confess to one believer is to confess before Christ. Um, And when we confess before Christ, we confess before his entire church. And so in that personal, in that one-on-one, we have that opportunity to be brought to the whole. When we confess our sins, both before God and other believers, not just saying the words, but actually from a profound, deep, repentant heart, we give up all control of our own goodness, of our own attempts at self-justification. We're admitting, finally, I am not enough. I cannot save myself when we lay ourselves out completely, when we leave behind our own self-justification, only then has that confessed, acknowledged sin lost its power to isolate you, to keep you away from people, and our souls can begin to heal from the bones that wasted away and the, the strength that was dried up that David talked about. Only then are the walls torn down between us and God and us and others. When we confess, we are no longer hiding our sin, and therefore we are no longer isolated in our sin. I mentioned earlier that confession wasn't just good for us, but in fact good for the entire church body. Uh, In Christ, uh, disciples are so much more than individuals. The Bible describes us as being stones, being built up into a united temple of God. I like to think that each one of us is like an individual brick. Yes, you are a small brick, but when we're united with other bricks, when we are cemented together, we become much stronger than any individual brick could be. It's this strength and unity as a church that has the power to counter the power of shame. Shame is strong, but I believe the power of God through his church is even stronger. When I say that shame is strong, I, th- I think a lot of us kind of scoff a little bit. And we can see how sin action and isolation is bad, but shame? Why does an emotion like shame have so much power? Last week, uh, if you remember, we talked about how guilt can be a good indicator light. It's like a check engine light uh, that something's wrong. Something under the hood needs to be looked at by a mechanic. And that's true. I stand by that. But I think it's because guilt and shame are two slightly different things. 
even though it's a negative emotion, even though it doesn't feel good, guilt isn't always bad for us. Guilt simply tells us, I did something bad. And if we know what we did bad, we can move to fix it. We can move to repent from it. We can move away from it. Shame, on the other hand, goes a step further and says, not I did something bad, rather I am bad. My personal self, who I am, is rotten and filthy, and I should go hide from people. It's the shame of who we are that causes us to hide from others. We don't want others to see our failure, and that failure is our very self. Shame offers no solution on how to get better. There, there is no fixing with shame. Shame wants us to live alone in the dark. It's afraid of light, and it's in this darkness, this unconfessed, unacknowledged sin festers and grows, pushing along the cycle of sin. It's this fear of being seen as a sinner, to be fully known as ungodly, that causes shame within us. And because we put up these masks to hide the shame of who we are on the very inside, that we grow relationships with one another as the, oh, I'm all right people. We grow relationships as the, oh, I'm fine people, but never relationships as the, I'm not okay sinner. These masked relationships don't allow any room for sin. So everybody must conceal their sins by any means necessary, even if it means having false relationships, even if it means leading uh, isolation from others, even if it means hiding from God himself. As we can see, shame is very powerful. I, I don't think we should treat it lightly. It's a strong instinct, one that made even the first humans hide from God but it's not all-powerful. Shame is strong, but it's not the strongest. Though shame tells us you are bad, you are terrible, you can never be redeemed, God says differently. God says that while we were at our lowest, while we were enemies of his, while we were ungodly, while we were filthy, Christ died for us. At our absolute lowest, that's when God chose to break through with his gospel light. Shame has no place because God has already seen us at our worst and has declared us clean in spite of that. My all-time favorite verse in the Bible uh, says exactly that. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than what our heart says, and he knows everything. That's from 1 John 3.20. Our heart can try to tell us you're not good enough. Our heart can try to tell us you are filthy. Our heart can try to tell us God will never love you. But God already knows not only everything, but he knows that he has called you clean, righteous, and redeemed. You don't have to hide from God because God's already seen it all. To counteract shame, uh, and especially shame with other people, uh, the best antidote is to live in fellowship and community with others as unmasked sinners. Simply put, we must live as a healthy church community. Because when we live with other people who are not all right, when we live with others who admit that they are sinners, our shame dissipates. When we endure the pain and humiliation of confession, we come through the other side with closer relationships, closer fellowship with one another. And there, 
when each brick acts together to form that wall, we find that strength in unity. David himself said it best in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell together in unity. One of the best ways to foster this fellowship, uh, and certainly the way I think David approached it, uh, is to use your stories of failure for the glory of God. Paul said it really well, let us boast in our weakness so the power of Christ may be seen. After David received God's forgiveness, uh, and after he confessed his sins to Nathan, he resolved to go back to the people of God and use his story as an example of righteous repentance. David could have used his political power to, to bury this story, um, and we've definitely seen politicians who attempt to do so today, uh, but instead he decided to go public with his story. He let his fall be a warning to others so they might reflect on the wickedness in themselves and instead choose to follow the will of God. We can see David's resolve to go public. We can see David's resolve to confess his sin to the people of God. In verses 8 through 10, David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Much like Paul, David chose not to hide his weaknesses, but rather to boast in his weakness all the more gladly, so that the people of God would be encouraged and edified. David knew firsthand the pains of being stubborn like a mule, uh, being guided by the bit and the bridle. Uh, so he resolved instead to instruct and teach others what he had learned. This openness and vulnerability was like the mortar that cemented the wall together in unity. David left his own isolation by confessing his sins, and what he came back to was the community of God's people. He squashed his shame by readily and openly being honest about his own sin. Sin, that is, sin that's in the light of confession and fellowship has lost all power of shame in our own lives. As a personal example, a personal story of this, uh, for me, a large part of my uh, younger adult years was, and I, I realize I'm still a pretty young adult, <laughs> but I mean more like uh, teenage years, let's say. Uh, a, lot, a big part of that uh, involved looking at sexually explicit material online, right? Um, a big part of that for me was that sin-shame cycle. It's kind of on topic because David himself fell into a sexual sin-shame cycle, and I was in the same boat, right? You start out looking at images on a computer, leads to shame, leads to isolation, leads to despair, all the way back around. And that was something I struggled with for a long time. Um, it wasn't until I got to college, it wasn't until I got plugged in with community that I started realizing wait, I might not be the only person who struggles with this. I might not be the only person who wants this cycle to end. Uh, as I became involved in community, as I started filling up with the gospel, I reached a point where I could confess that sin, where I could talk to others and find joy instead of pain. Um, and as a really cool end 
to this story uh, when I came on staff uh, with the college ministry in Texas that I worked with. In fact, the same college ministry that helped me walk out of that place. Um, when I, and when that came about, I started noticing that a lot of freshmen and a lot of, I mean, not even just freshmen, I specifically work with freshmen, but a lot of the guys struggled with a similar issue. Um, and so we started developing curriculums. We started developing programs. We, we used this very same sin-shame cycle. Uh, in fact, I got this from an online resource about pornography um, to use that story to build others up, to encourage others to walk out of that. Um, and we saw a lot of success from that. Um, and so going public, talking about those personal struggles, not hiding it, not hiding the the vulnerability and the intimacy, but rather uh, sharing it openly is hard. It hurts. It's humiliating, uh, but it helps others grow and it helps others learn how to walk out of that same place. And so that's just a personal example of my life uh, of where I've seen God intervene in that sin and shame cycle. But we still have one more to get rid of, right? We still have sin action. Can't leave that there by itself. <laughs> um, once we have been filled with the gospel, once we have confessed our hidden sins, uh, once we've surrounded ourselves in fellowship, God leads us into a place of holy living. This is the natural progression of a heart that's been changed by God. I mentioned earlier that good works don't save us and good works cannot inspire God to do anything for us. Our good works don't impress God so that he saves us. And that's true. I still stand by that. But a lot of times when I talk to people and I'm sharing the gospel and I get to the point where I say, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith alone. A lot of people hear me say, we're saved by faith alone and they switch things up and they say, oh, then that means I never have to do another good thing ever again in my life. And to that, I'd say that's a problem of putting the cart before the horse. Good works can never lead to our salvation, right? Good works don't lead to salvation, but salvation should always lead us to good works, to holy living. Previously, our hearts were turned away from God. We didn't desire God. We did not delight. We did not take pleasure in the things of God. But now that God has changed our heart, God has turned us around, we've done that repentance, which means do a 180. We want to, we desire, we long to do the things that God does. That's the turning around that we talk about. Before, we lived in shame, isolation, and despair. But now we can join David in the closing verse of this chapter by saying, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. As humans, and especially as redeemed humans, we're built, we're programmed for a relationship with God. We're designed to imitate him, to love the things he loves, and to follow the path that he walks. Righteousness is less about do the right thing and more about do what pleases God. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who did good things on the outside while their hearts were still far away from God. I mean, even today, we don't need to go to ancient stories from the Bible about people doing external good works. I mean, you can look at celebrities, billionaires, uh, anybody who has any sort of publicity. 
doing good philanthropic things just so that they can appear on the front newspaper as, wow, this person donated $5 million to charity. Incredible. And don't get me wrong, that's a good thing, but a lot of times it seems like they're doing it more for the publicity than for being close to God. And that's not what David's talking about here. Like this public uh, attention grabbing is not what David's about. David's calling back to Asre, being blessed, supremely happy, eternally satisfied, totally fulfilled, is the one who walks close with God. Those who follow him can be glad and shout for joy. And this, this kind of Christ-like living becomes much easier when we're surrounded by other people who are similarly following that same path of God. It's hard to be a brick on your own, but when you're together in a wall, it's much easier to fulfill your purpose. Being in community helps us to find and fulfill that purpose. Now, now, when sin arises in our life, and don't get me wrong, sin will eventually come back in. We will eventually go back to sin action. I'm not saying that when you become a Christian, your, your life immediately becomes perfect and you never sin again. But now, uh, when sin comes back, we have a choice. Do we want to go clockwise uh, down the path that leads back to shame, back to isolation, back to despair? Or when sin comes in our life, do we want to repent and go back to that gospel hope, back to confession and go counterclockwise? It's a, it's a left or right path choice. When we sin, how do we want to handle it? How do we want to deal with it? And that difference of choice, that difference on which path we want to take, whether wasting away with sin in our life or rejoicing with supreme happiness, makes all the difference in the world. If you haven't entered that relationship with God, that connection with him, that walking with him, if you haven't had that gospel hope change and transform your spirit, if you're still in that sin-shame cycle and haven't found a way out, God freely offers it. God wants relationship with you, and he's done something to intervene in that sin-shame cycle. Uh, he sent his son to die on a cross uh, to forgive our sins, to, to put away our sins, to say, you shall not die. If you uh, are in that boat and you want to enter into this relationship with God, uh, I'm going to pray, um, and maybe you, you can pray along with me, uh, follow along, uh, and just ask God to open up that relationship. Um, so, let's pray. God, I admit that I am a sinner. God, I, I acknowledge that I have been isolating myself. I've been putting up masks for a long time, uh, trying to justify myself, trying to be righteous on my own. Uh, but I realize that all I'm doing is spiraling over and over again in that cycle of sin and shame. So God, rather than try to hide who I am, I acknowledge who I am. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and I acknowledge that I need you to change my heart. God, I ask that you would transform my heart, transform my spirit, um, make me someone who is not a sinner, but someone who is declared righteous um, by the blood of your son, by the sacrifice that he uh, endured so that we could be made new. God, teach me to 
follow in your footsteps. Teach me to uh, not follow my own way and what I think is best, but rather to follow you and what you say is best. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to join your family. Thank you so much for uh, loving me even when I'm at my lowest. King Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, congratulations. That's all it took. You are in the family. You are part of that church community. Uh, you don't have to go through any special steps to actually become a Christian. That, that simple prayer of faith is all it takes. Um, so if that's you, we'd like to welcome you to the family. Uh, we love having family reunions. Uh, so I'll be in the back at the end. Uh, Rachel will be in the back at the end. I almost said Brian and Julie will be in the back. They're not here, so they will not be in the back. Uh, but you can talk to me, you can talk to Rachel, you can talk to someone that you came to church with, uh, but just talk to someone um, because we love having those family reunions. But for others of us, uh, this isn't the first time uh, that we have prayed to God. This isn't our first time being in that family. Uh, for some of us, our prayer isn't about starting a relationship with God, but rather taking a next step in that relationship with God. Uh, so uh, if that's you uh, and you want to pray to invite God to work in that intervention cycle, to work in that, uh, not the blue cycle, but the gold cycle, uh, maybe pray something like this. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we're so grateful that you intervene, that you step in, that you make a way out of the sin and shame cycle. God, thank you for your goodness, for your love, even when we are unworthy, even when we're undeserving. God, I recognize that at times in my life, I have fallen into the cycle of sin and shame. I have made the choice of, rather than confessing to you, rather than being open to you, uh, trying to hide from you and try, trying to solve my problems on my own. Um, God, I confess that I am a sinner um, and that I need your righteousness to fill me every day. God, bring me to a place uh, of being in church community, of being with uh, brothers and sisters who similarly want to follow you. Um, God, show me hidden places in my heart that I need to confess Show me sins that I haven't acknowledged uh, that I need to bring to light so that they may lose the power of shame and isolation in my life. King Jesus, um, I pray uh, that I would find my supreme happiness, that I, my heart would be able to be oh so very happy following and walking alongside you. Um, King Jesus, it's in your name we pray.